church. Uh, and uh, can you tell me where Jesus was born? And the man thought a minute. He said, um, Amarillo. He said, no, it wasn't Amarillo. I'm sorry. You know, you need to go study your Bible, and then maybe we can talk again in the future. Well, the man was, was worried he might not have enough time to study it sufficiently to find out. And so he thought, well, I'll try the Methodist church. And the Methodist minister decided he needed to administer a similar admissions test. He says, well, we'd love to have you in our congregation, but we have an admissions test to join our church. And, and uh, can you tell me where Jesus was born? And the man thought for a moment. He said, Abilene. And he said, oh, no, no, it's, uh, you need to go study your Bible a little bit more and, and uh, maybe then you can come back. So he, he thought for a little bit and he thought, well, I'll, I'll try the, the non-denominational church. And so he went there and uh, once again the pastor had heard about his reputation and he said, uh, well, sir, we have a, an admissions test for our church. Can you tell me where Jesus was born? And the man thought a minute and he said, Lubbock. And he says, no, you better study your Bible a bit. So finally, in desperation, he goes to the Catholic church. And he says, listen, he says, I'd like to join your church. But before I do, I have a question. You, can you tell me where Jesus was born? And the Catholic priest says, why, in Palestine, my good man. He says, oh, it was East Texas. Uh, so at any rate, sometimes what we know just isn't so. And, of course, these kids demonstrate that fact for us. Uh, but I have occasionally preached a, a, a message which grew into two messages, and I realized it had been about four years since I'd done it, and I think it was worth revisiting because a lot of what we think we know about the story of Christmas just isn't so. Uh, I get a little nuts when I watch uh, Bible movies sometimes, and they didn't bother to have a Bible scholar uh, on, on the movie. And when the, the Joseph and Mary movie came out a number of years ago, it was one of those that kind of drove me nuts. Uh, uh, there was a 19th century humorist by the name of Josh Billings that said, the trouble ain't what people don't know, it's what they know that ain't so. And of course, Ronald Reagan rephrased this a little bit. He said, it isn't so much that liberals are ignorant, it's just that they know so many things that aren't so. And uh, so it's just a modern day uh, rephrasing of that. But we need to understand why Christmas is so very important anyway. Uh, nowhere in Scripture are we actually commanded to celebrate the birth of Christ. We do find that there's a precedent for celebrating the resurrection. That's what we do every single Sunday. Uh, the day of worship on Sunday was changed from, from the, the Jewish Saturday, which is still the Sabbath, by the way. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Uh, people try to say, oh, well, we keep the Sabbath. No, you don't. As Christians, we don't keep the Sabbath. We keep the resurrection day uh, on Sunday. But we need to understand why Christmas is important and worthy of our study. See, God created man to be perfect so that he could have fellowship with him. But uh, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and as, as by uh, sin entered into the world by one man, and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. And so uh, we violated God's commandment. Evil got in the world, and that separated us from fellowship with God. But God loved the world so much that He planned a way for man to be redeemed. Now, God's a trinity. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, he's in uh, one, one God, but He's in three persons. And it's kind of a, a poor analogy because it, uh, it kind of corresponds to something called modalism I won't go into. But I, I just like to explain the fact to children, for example, 
The H2O is the chemical name for water, but it can exist in three forms. It can be ice, which is a solid. It can be water, which is a liquid, which my daughter just brought me some of. And then it can be, if you heat it up enough, it can turn into steam and it becomes a vapor or a gas. And you can do the same thing with iron. You can get it hot enough that it'll vaporize and turn into a gas, or it can be a liquid, or it can be a solid. And everything can exist in these three forms if gone to the right temperature. Um, now, it doesn't mean that God is only one of these at the same time. He's all three at the same time, but He's still just one God. But God took on human flesh in the, in the manger where Jesus entered and became, He's always been the second person of Godhead. He was called Yahweh or Jehovah in the Old Testament. And He took on human form and He was born as a baby, had to grow up uh, as a child, had to become an adult. He had to live life in flesh that felt the same kind of pain, the same kind of hunger, the same kind of uh, fatigue that we feel. Uh, He was in all points a man, but He was 100% man, but at the same time He was 100% God. Uh, An amazing thing because... There had to be somebody that could reconcile man to God, and the only person that could do that was somebody who was both man and God. And so Jesus is uniquely qualified to, to bridge the gap between us. He's the only human, because he is, again, 100% human as well as 100% God, but he's the only human to ever live a life free of sin. He never told a lie. He never stole. He never lusted after something. He never coveted. Uh, he's the only one that has kept the law of God perfectly. Uh, he was incapable of sin because uh, the Bible tells us that the sin nature is passed from the father, not through the mother. Paul told that to Timothy. He explained to Timothy uh, that Eve was deceived in the transgression, but Adam was not. And so the, the sin nature is passed through our fathers. Well, Jesus had no human father. His father uh, was God the Father as He is God the Son. And so He never had a sin nature. And you might think, well, that means He never experienced temptation. No, it means He experienced it to a degree you and I never will. Um, I've tried to eat healthy the last few years, and I think, I think I'm down 56 pounds this year. So, you know, that's something. But, you, you know, it's hard around the holidays because somebody's going to fix that, uh, that banana pudding or they're going to fix the Aunt Johnny's potato casserole or some other thing that is not keto friendly, okay? And I, I can stay keto pretty long time, but if I'm in the kitchen and there's some of Aunt Johnny's potato casserole left on the island and nobody's around, a spoonful is probably going to find its way into my mouth even though I shouldn't be eating it. It's not, not what my body needs. It's bad for me. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we're, we can be tempted so far and then we just kind of give in to the temptation. It's like you might think you can do without that uh, chocolate cherry cake, but when you've been staring at it for two, three days, finally you said, you know, doggone it, I'm going to have a piece of that cake. Jesus faced temptation, but he never gave in, which means he faced temptation to a greater degree than we're capable of experiencing because we give in. Uh, without the temptation and the, the flesh just being stronger and stronger. But he died a criminal's death. They crucified him on a cross like, like a thief and a murderer, even though he'd never even sinned because he was taking our punishment for us. He, it's like he was taking our whooping for us. Uh, but what do we all deserve because of our sin? Well, we deserve eternity in the lake of fire. 
we, we deserve to die and go to hell because of our sin. But God loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, and then he, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, they couldn't find his body. Now, this is amazing because uh, they had sealed his body in with soldiers. And the fact is, the Bible tells us there was 36 Roman centurions, or that, that's the word that uses that typically means 36 Roman centurions. And, or, and then on top of that, there was a Sanhedrin guard of about another 80 soldiers out. So there were probably somewhere between 116, 120 soldiers outside the tomb. It had been sealed with a Roman seal, was not to be broken for anything, and all the guards were under penalty of death if they fell asleep. And yet, Later, they're all saying, well, we fell asleep and somebody stole the body. We, you know, and the Jews had to beg for these Roman soldiers not to lose their lives because they would be under penalty of death had they lost their lives. The fact of the matter is Jesus rose again. He's alive. Now, that means for us that uh, all we have to do is receive Jesus into our heart for Him to be our Lord and Savior. It's not enough to believe in Jesus we can hear stories about Jesus and believe Him, but we have to receive Him. And at some point we have to say, Jesus, come into my heart and, and save me. Forgive me of my sins. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. John 1.12 says, But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe on His name. Uh, but God wanted us to really pay attention to Jesus in the great stage of history. And so there were prophecies hundreds of years before Jesus was born that he carried out in minute detail. And we're going to look at a few of those that maybe most of you aren't really aware of. So the resurrection proved that Jesus was indeed God, but it's, it's amazing how much detail God the Father went through to orchestrate the birth of Jesus, or as we should call it, the incarnation of Jesus. Incarnation means the putting on of flesh, where God the Son put on human flesh and it was done just perfectly. Uh, so there is only one way to heaven. You can't be good enough to get there. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what kind of upstanding citizen you are. And unlike the guy in the story that thought Palestine was in East Texas, it doesn't matter what church you're a member of. The only way to get to heaven is to receive Jesus as your Savior. And so you need to admit you're a sinner. You need to believe uh, that He's the Son of God, that He died for your sins, that He rose again, and you need to ask Him for forgiveness and receive them in your heart. And that's the only way that it can happen. So let's talk about the typical nativity story, and then we'll go to Scripture to read that story. Uh, the typical story that we hear is that Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem. Well, that's true. That's definitely true. And then we've seen movies, and of course everybody tells a story that Mary rides a donkey. Uh, we don't know if that's true or not because there is no mention in Scripture of Mary riding a donkey. It just says they went down to Bethlehem. She could have been on a camel. She could have been on foot. would have been hard, somebody that was in the late stages of pregnancy. Uh, she could have been riding in a cart with someone else. We don't know. But uh, this is one of those things that tradition shows Mary riding a donkey. But we've got to be careful that we don't base our doctrine on tradition. It needs to be based on Scripture, and there's nowhere in Scripture says that. And then the typical story is they got to Bethlehem, and they went to a local inn, uh, equivalent of a hotel in, in that day and time. It's just a place that had more rooms. 
and that there wasn't any room. And so in the traditional Christmas movies and stories, they go first to one end and then to another and then to another and then to another. And finally, one guy says, you know, and everywhere they went, there's no room for them. There's no room for them. Finally, one guy says, well, you can, you can come uh, to, uh, I've, got a, I've got a barn out back and you all can go back there and, you know, I've got clean hay and you can, you can stay there. Um, but there is actually no record in Scripture of any innkeeper offering their stable. Now, that's how we always tell the story. That's how the movies tell the story. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that the innkeeper uh, made available a manger. It just says they went to a manger. And then, of course, the, the story always ends with the wise men coming to uh, the manger and bringing their boysenberry, I mean gold and, and uh, frankincense and myrrh uh, to, to Jesus. Uh, but the wise men never came to the manger. That's not correct. Uh, the Bible tells us that he was a young toddler when the wise men came and that they did not come to a manger or a barn. They came to a house when Jesus was a young child. So we kind of get... Uh, a lot of the details wrong. And so you will see, and of course for many years, I don't know where they are this year, but Elaine has set up the nativity scene up here on these front uh, prayer benches. Uh, but after hearing the sermon the first time, she made sure the wise men were over here and the, the shepherds were over here because that's the way it, it happened. So she, she took great care to, to make sure that uh, we, we stayed biblical uh, with that story. Uh, but I want us to look at a few of these things. And, and so Luke 2.7 is where we're going to start this journey. I, I love the Gospel of Luke because it's the most detailed of the four Gospels. And we have more details about his birth in Luke than we have in the other Gospels. And it says, And she brought forth, talking about Mary, her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in inn. So first thing, Christ was born in a manger. But why do we assume the manger's inside the city? Because all the, the movies show this, that they went from end to end. Finally, a guy says, well, you can have the little barn out back, and we think it's inside the city of Bethlehem. Why do we assume that? And why do we assume that an innkeeper offered him? Well, the answer to that is tradition. It's tradition, but it, the Bible doesn't say it. So to really get an understanding for Jesus born, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 35, because this is where Bethlehem gets its first Mentioned, and we need to kind of pay attention to it. So let me read it to you, uh, beginning at verse 15. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him Bethel, which means the house of God, by the way. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass as her soul was in departing, she died in labor, essentially. It says, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Now, Benoni, we'll find out in a minute, means son of my suffering, and Benjamin means son of my right hand. Uh, and it says, his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. Now, there were three Bethlehems, by the way, in the Middle East. Bethlehem Ephratah, or Ephrath, is where Rachel is buried, and that's the Bethlehem where Jesus is going to be born. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Adar. It looks like Eder, but we're going to pronounce it Adar because that's how it's pronounced in Hebrew. This tower is going to be important to us in a little bit, so we'll come back to that. 
So let's first of all look at the name of Benjamin. So he was given two names. Benoni means son of my sorrows uh, because that was, or son of my suffering because that was what Rachel was experiencing, that she was dying as she's having the son. But Benjamin sends a son of my right hand as the right hand is the position of power in Scripture. Now it's interesting that Jesus is really called by both of these names. In Isaiah 53, he's called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, so Jesus was a man of sorrows. But he's also pictured numerous times in Scripture, most notably in Hebrews chapter 1, as being seated at the right hand of God. Uh, he upholds all things by his power. <laughs> We're told in, in John that nothing was made that was made without him. Uh, he, he upholds all the things by the word of his power. He's pictured at the right hand of God. So he is a son of suffering, but he's also the son of God's right hand. Now, the place of this birth is, is Ephrath. Ephrath means fruitfulness. Uh, and later it's changed to Ephratah, which means the Lord's fruitfulness. And, of course, Bethlehem means house of bread. Baith is house. Lechem is bread. And so it's the house of bread. And there are two Bethlehems near Jerusalem. There's another one further off. But basically, Bethlehem Ephratah would mean the bread from the Lord's fruitfulness. And Jesus, one of the titles that he gives himself in John, where there are the seven I am sayings in the book of John, is I am the bread of life. So even in one of the names Jesus gave himself, he's claiming to be uh, the, the son of God, and he's claiming to have been born in Bethlehem Ephratah. He's the, the, the bread of life and, and the Lord's fruitfulness. Now, during Benjamin's birth, some things happened. Rachel died and was buried uh, near Bethlehem. Uh, Israel mourned over her a mile away near a tower called the Tower of Adar. Literally, tower is called Migdal. Migdal Adar is the tower, and they, they went to, to mourn uh, there. It's about a mile outside of the city of Bethlehem uh, after they buried Rachel. And then Rachel means little ewe lamb. Uh, now, Jews regarded Bethlehem as a holy place that was linked to death. And just as the song we just finished singing said, Jesus was born to die. He came here for one reason, that is that he could die as a sacrifice on the cross. In Proverbs 18.10 it says, In the name of the Lord, of course that's talking about Jesus, is a strong tower, he's a Migdal Adar basically, the righteous runneth into it and is safe. And of course Jesus is the Lamb of God. So there's a lot of parallels between the first death recorded at Bethlehem and the birth of Jesus Christ at Bethlehem. A branch of Caleb's family uh, settled there, and Caleb's son uh, Salma was known as the father of Bethlehem in 1 Chronicles 2.51. And Bethlehem was the home of a young Levite who served as a priest to Micah, uh, we read about in several places, and, and of Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, uh, the Bethlehemite, uh, David's father, uh, were all from Bethlehem. So it's a notable place in Scripture, this particular one. It was the birthplace of David. It was called the city of David later because David the king had been born there. It was the home of one of his mighty men, Elhanan, whose name means God is gracious. It was the scene of a daring exploit by three of David's warriors because uh, David just says, oh, I wish I just had some water from the well at Bethlehem. And three of, of his mighty warriors broke through a bunch of Philistine marauders uh, occupying Bethlehem to bring David water from the well near the city gate of his hometown. And, of course, you re may remember when they did it, 
Uh, rather than drinking the water that he had so coveted, he poured it out before the Lord as, as an offering because he was giving to God what was dearest to him. Now, in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, there is a prophecy. Uh, now, remember, this is Old Testament, long before Jesus was born, but it tells us exactly where the Messiah would be born. Uh, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, too small to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go out for me to be ruler in Israel, and his origins are from old, from ancient days. In other words, a king would be born in Bethlehem, and not only would be he be a king of Israel, but he would be a, a king who had ruled from ancient days. In other words, before history started. <laughs> uh, that he would always have, have been king. Uh, king James says, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. I think that's a better translation, actually. Uh, that, uh, in other words, this was an eternal king that would be born there. Now, what about this room for the end thing? Uh, a lot of people in the, in the movies and in the retelling of the story said, well, since uh, Quirinius the governor passed a decree that there had to be a census taken and that everybody had to go to the town of their birth and Joseph was from Bethlehem, they went there and a whole bunch of people had to go back to Bethlehem and there were so many people coming in town, that's why all the inns were full. Well, that's a fanciful retelling and it certainly seems plausible but that's not the, really the reason that Mary couldn't go in. The real reason is, is that when a woman had a baby because of the flow of blood after the baby was born, she was considered ceremonially unclean and anything she sat on, anything she laid on, anything that was in the room with her was also committed, was designated as being ceremonially unclean. So let's read Leviticus. And if a woman have an issue, this is the flow of blood after the birth, and her issue in her flesh be blood, she shall be put apart seven days, and whosoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. So anybody touches her. And everything that she lies on in separation shall be unclean. Everything that she sits on shall be unclean. And whosoever touches her shall wash his clothes and bathe himself water and be unclean until the evening. And whosoever toucheth anything that she set upon shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and he shall be unclean until the evening. And if it be on her bed or anything whereon she sitteth, when he toucheth it, he shall be unclean until the evening. You did not want to be around a woman after she had given birth because you would be ceremonially unclean. You couldn't go to the, uh, the tabernacle in the Old Testament. You couldn't have gone to the temple in the New Testament. You couldn't worship in a synagogue. Why? Because you are unclean if you come into any contact whatsoever. And of course, uh, if any of you have ever stayed in an inn or a hotel, you know, there's the constant changing of the sheets and the handling of things. And, and, and just the reality is, is it would have been very, very easy with a pregnant woman in the house that was near the time of giving birth, that if she had birth, she was going to ceremonially contaminate a whole room in your house and ceremonially contaminate anybody that walked in to do anything for her. So if you saw a pregnant woman coming, and I know this sounds heartless, but if you're a Jew and you see a pregnant woman coming and she wants to take up lodging, you're like, sorry, no room. <laughs> you can't stay here. Because that would have inconvenienced every guest in the house. Uh, and, and remember, this is ceremonial law. It's, it, it sounds cold, but the reason is to highlight the, the holiness of of God when we worship Him. And so a woman who had a child automatically becomes unclean. The fact is it wasn't just seven days. That was normal for just a, a woman having a normal monthly cycle. 
it is longer. There's, there's this 80-day period of separation that follows the birth of a female child, 40-day period of separation that follows the birth of a male child. Uh, seven days of that is for the uncleanness, and then there's an additional 33 days. But if, it, if she had a baby in a common living area, and remember, the hotels back then didn't have a bunch of separate rooms, each with its own door. It was pretty, it was pretty much common area where you would stay, and they would set up beds for you. Uh, but anyone who shared that area would have been ceremonial and clean. They'd have to be set apart for seven days and washed before they could worship again. So uh, a woman about to give birth was not welcome as a visitor. Uh, and uh, she would have known, in fact, that she couldn't get a hotel room. She couldn't have stayed in the inn uh, because everybody would have, every Jew would have known this. So let's talk about Migdal Adar. Uh, Migdal just means a tower. Now, a tower in the Middle East just means uh, the technical term in geography is a promontory. It's a, it's a tall hill or it's a mountain, uh, but basically it's a place where you could get to the top of it and you could see for a much greater distance. So if you're a shepherd keeping sheep, uh, you could have gone to the top of this hill and you could have seen the sheep around all sides of the hill for some distance. And that's where the shepherd needed to be to be aware of what was going on in his flock. So a tower, a migdal, was a high hill. And uh, adar means flock. And, and so it means that this was a tower from which shepherds watched their flock. Now, it was very often true in olden days that they would build an actual fortress or an actual uh, maybe a, a house or something there that was a little bit fortified because the shepherds might end up spending a lot of time out here. And of course, any uh, in the ancient Near East, you always wanted to build in fortresses on, on high hills. And so I'll show you a picture in a moment of a particular edifice that was built on Migdal Adar. But basically it means tower of the flock. It's a large hill used by shepherds to watch the sheep. Now something about Bethlehem that is unique is that the lambs that were raised there were specifically for offerings for God. Uh, In fact is uh, there were two lambs required every uh, day of the year as an offering for the, for the nation. So you use the Jewish calendar of 360 days, that's 720 lambs that had to constantly be in circulation in order to meet the uh, requirements of Levitical sacrifice in the Old Testament. Uh, and then, of course, there's the Passover lambs. And, and all these lambs used for sacrifice had to be perfect. They had to be perfect in every way. They couldn't have a scratch on them, couldn't have a nick on them, couldn't have a scar, they couldn't have a spot. They all had to be uh, perfectly the same color and, and nothing could be deformed about them. And so only Passover over lambs were raised there. They were raised to be killed. Uh, that's why you raised them. They were going to be sacrifices just like Rachel died there and just like uh, our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, would die for us. Uh, the Passover lambs, when they came to Jerusalem, always came through a particular gate called the Sheep Gate into Jerusalem. And by the way, this is the same gate through which Jesus Christ rode a donkey in on Palm Sunday. Uh, you know, he rode the donkey going into Jerusalem. Uh, he came through the Sheep Gate. Uh, and uh, that was the entrance that he made as the Messiah. So basically, not only was he proclaiming to be Messiah by fulfilling a prophecy of riding a donkey into Jerusalem, but he fulfilled uh, his picture or type of being our Passover lamb by coming through the same gate that Passover lambs came to, to Jerusalem to be offered. 
now, another thing is they were grazed on very special land. No other animals were allowed there. Okay? Uh, you couldn't have Passover lambs eating grass on the same ground that unclean animals were, were eating. So, uh, if you're out there feeding your camels, which is an unclean animal, uh, they, camels couldn't eat on the same ground as Passover lamb because it would have ceremonially contaminated the land with their dung and other things. And so, uh, only sheep were allowed to graze here. Which, by the way, this kind of starts to mess with us in a minute when we look at typical nativity scenes and we see the cow over here and the camel over here and the donkey over here and four or five other kinds of animals around too. It just didn't happen that way. Uh, they, this land was only for Passover lambs. And that's what, and in fact, is all you had to do was say the word Bethlehem Ephratah to somebody. They instantly knew you were talking about the place where the Passover lambs was raised. It was common knowledge. Everybody uh, under, understood that. So this is a very significant place, this Migdal Adar. And again, it says the name of the Lord is a Migdal Adar. He's a, he's a strong tower. He's tower of the flock. The righteous run into it and it's safe. He's the tower, our Migdal, for all of us who are in the flock. And we're only safe when we're in Jesus. Now here's, here's one of the structures that's been built on Migdal Adar over time. And again, they had 720 sacrificial lambs a year they were raised in Bethlehem. So if you said Bethlehem and lamb, everybody knew it was a sacrificial lamb. And this is a thousand, little over a thousand paces outside of town. So uh, think about this. Uh, I did most of my growing up because I've grown up and, you know, I, I, I did some of my growing up uh, when we first moved to Texas. I, I started out in Oklahoma and then we moved to Westerville, Ohio, and then moved to Springfield, Illinois, and then we moved to to Amarillo, Texas, and then from Amarillo we moved to Canyon, Texas, and uh, then my parents got divorced and I moved to Arlington a little bit later, and, and then from there, Arlington we moved to Jacksonville. Later I went back and lived with my dad in Lubbock and then Slayton. I still have grit between my back teeth from that experience. Uh, and then eventually I moved back to Jacksonville, finished high school. Well, I've lived in Irving went to MacArthur High in Irving, and then I went back to Jacksonville again. But you know, when you say to somebody, you live in Jacksonville, it doesn't have to mean within the city limits. It could be two miles out of town, and you would just say, I grew up in Jacksonville. Uh, very few people are specific enough to say, well, I, I, I lived a thousand paces outside the city. So when it says Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it's that same kind of phrase, meaning that he's in, that's, it's Bethlehem, not the city limits proper, but yeah, a thousand paces outside the main city would still be considered uh, Bethlehem. And this is where uh, the sheep are kept, and those that were destined for sacrifice were sometimes kept a little closer to the city than this. Now, let's talk about the manger for a minute. There was a manger at Migdal Adar, where only sacrificial lambs were born. A lot of times if they knew that a ewe was uh, about to give birth to a baby, they would take that ewe uh, and they would keep it in the manger there until she gave uh, birth. And there were no other animals allowed there because this whole manger had to be kept ceremonially clean. They actually had priests who would come in after the manger got cleaned every week and they would anoint the, they would anoint the inside of this stall 
and they would anoint the mangers that were in there and that were used would often give birth and it was anointed on a regular basis and the stable was usually only used during inclement weather because most of the time sheep were born out in the pasture. Uh, but when ewes were giving birth, but it was almost always empty and clean unless the weather was inclement and they needed uh, the sheep to be born indoors. So it was a clean place and it was usually empty most of the time. Now, the Jewish targum, uh, the, the, the word targum comes from targumum, which means spoken paraphrases or explanations or expansions of Jewish law that some rabbi meant to explain something. It's not inspired scripture, but it is interesting that in Targum Yonatan, uh, which is cited by Rabbi Monk, he paraphrases Genesis 35, 23 and Micah 4, 8. It says, He spread his tent beyond Migdal Adar, the place where King Messiah will reveal himself at the end of days. Now, they had the, the wrong time. They figured the Messiah is coming back kind of at the end of time. Well, he's already been there. Uh, they had the right place, but the wrong time. Isn't it interesting, though, that these Jewish rabbis that didn't recognize the Messiah when he came, still knew from their study of Scripture exactly where he'd be born. Not just Bethlehem, but specifically in Migdal Adar. So it's very interesting. Now what about these swaddling cloths? Uh, We talk about when new babies are born of swaddling them. Uh, you know, you get you wrap them tight in a little baby blanket and they feel secure and snug because for nine months they've been inside mama and everything's been tight and a tight fit there. And so we swaddle them and it gives them comfort. But the reality is, is that uh, when Passover lambs were birthed, little lambs, they try to stand up and then they fall and then they're a little skittish to begin with. So they're, here they are kind of falling around and they're skittish and they're scared of this new world that they've just entered. And so what the shepherds would do is when the, the, the lamb came out, clean it, but then they'd wrap it in a cloth and they'd lay it in a stone manger. I'll show you a picture of that manger in a moment. But they'd lay it there until the lamb calmed down. They wouldn't take that cloth off because they didn't want the lamb either running or doing something to injure itself because remember, only perfect lambs could be used as sacrifice. So uh, they were very careful about this. So they'd wrap them in these clothes. They'd keep them from thrashing about and harming themselves until they had, had calmed down. And that's the purpose. Now, in Micah 4, 8, it says, And thou, O tower of the flock, that's Migdal Adar, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, that means they're right outside Bethlehem, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, that's the first rule or the first kingdom, the kingdom shall come unto the daughter of Jerusalem or Bethlehem. So he's basically saying there's a high hill outside Bethlehem at Migdal Adar and the first rule of God on earth, the king of kings and the Lord of lords would come uh, to that area. So let's Let's talk about the real nativity story, what really happened, not what's in the movies and not what's in the, a lot of church plays and things like that, but let's talk about what really happened. So Caesar Augustus, which means the supreme one, uh, uh, Caesars were often thought by the Romans to be gods, or at least they proclaimed themselves to be that. He decrees a census and a tax. He wanted to know how many people in the country, and he wants to tax them all. Rulers have a way of liking to tax us, you know, and they get to that early. So Joseph is forced to return to his hometown of Bethlehem. Mary is not required to go because she could stay with her parents, uh, but she accompanies him because she knows that the birth of the child is coming soon and she'd rather have him there when it happened than to be on her own. 
Now, again, there's no room in the end simply because nobody wanted somebody coming into their inn that was going to make everything ceremonially unclean. And Joseph has been told by an angel because Joseph thought about giving Mary a writ of divorcement. Now, divorce in the book of Exodus and Leviticus was nothing like divorce by the time of Jesus or like it is today. Um, by the time of Jesus, there were two schools of thought. One school rabbi said you can never divorce someone. The other school said if you find any uncleanness whatsoever, you can divorce them. And of course today, we, we have no fault divorce in most states where you, you don't have to have a cause. You can simply say, I want out of the marriage and out of the marriage. But back in these days, the only time you could divorce a woman after you had made a vow uh, you, you exchange vows, then the husband went back to prepare a place for her. He comes and gets her approximately a year later. They blow a trumpet and the bridegrooms, uh, uh, he, brings, he brings his bridegrooms with him and the bridesmaids have to be ready. And of course we know the story of the ten virgins and how they needed to be ready to leave at night. And uh, then they would have a, a wedding dinner together and then they would live in the father's house. Marriage was never physically consummated until after that, that wedding supper. But there was a period of one year during which if a man thought his fiancée, we'd call it that, and they called it wife because they'd already made a vow before God, but the marriage hasn't been physically consummated, uh, they, could, they could then say, you know, I want to give her a writ of divorcement. And you had to give a reason. You had to say, well, I think she's been unfaithful to me. And there were even prescriptions in the Old Testament for how, what do you do? How do you know she's been unfaithful to you? And there was a special ceremony just for that. We'll go into that another time. But uh, the reality is this was the only time. And Joseph had thought to put her away because he just sees that she's pregnant. And as far as he knows, there's only one way that'll happen. But then he's been told by an angel, no. This didn't happen the way things normally happen. God has overshadowed her. What she's carrying inside of her is the Son of God. And so Joseph then knows that he has to support her and take her with her. And so after the angel tells him that, it says, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in dreams, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost." And she shall bring forth the Son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The word Jesus means Savior. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So Joseph's family is Bethlehem. He would have known, by the way, that there was a prophetic significance assigned to Migdal Adar. So Joseph knows that Migdal Adar is where the Jewish rabbis said that the Messiah would come. He's just been told by the angel that his son is that Messiah and that she needs to, he needs to take care of Mary because she's going to bring forth the Messiah when she has this baby. And he would have known because he had been in that area and that was his hometown that there was a, a manger, a stable out there that was empty almost all the time. It was clean and it was ceremonially clean and he would have known that it would have some privacy at that time of year because uh, there wouldn't have been maybe the inclement weather. So he finds it empty and he takes Mary there and she's able to give uh, birth in that stable under some shelter 
and uh, she's able to have some privacy while she's doing it, not which they would not have had in a, a barn out back of a house in town. And it's ceremonially clean. And yes, there's no donkeys, there's no pigs, there's no chickens, there's no any of the other things you've seen in different Christmas movies. Uh, because the only animals ever allowed in here were Passover lambs or sacrificial lambs. And this Jesus was born in a manger that was dedicated for use in raising Passover lambs. And that's appropriate because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians that He is our Passover. He is the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, and he had a per, God had a perfectly executed plan. And here it is, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Purge out there that for that old leaven that you may be a new lump as you unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because He offered Himself. So where else should the Passover Lamb be born but in a manger dedicated to Passover lambs? Now, what is Passover? We need, uh, some of you may not know. But in the Old Testament, Egypt was in slavery, or excuse me, Egypt had enslaved the nation of Israel. And uh, the Israelites were making bricks to to build places for the Egyptians and they were under hardship and they cried out to God and God sent them Moses to be their deliverer. Now, he sends Moses, but Pharaoh doesn't want to let him go. And so there's a series of ten different plagues upon the nation of Egypt, uh, all of which went against one of the Egyptian gods. God, the, the real God, is showing that, uh, that none of these fake gods of Egypt amount to anything. Uh, now it's interesting, Pharaoh wore a crown and on his crown he had a snake that came up. I mean, you know, this was a golden snake, golden crown, and this snake came up. Uh, and it's, it's interesting that the, the devil is first pictured in Scripture as a serpent. And so uh, basically it's a picture of Israel being in slavery to the serpent, just like we're all slaves of sin. Uh, we can't help but sin. It's our nature until Jesus saves us. Then we have a choice. But prior to Jesus entering our heart, we are slaves to sin. And so God sent plagues upon the people, but Pharaoh kept refusing to let him go. And the last plague was that he would take the firstborn out of every family uh, that was not under the blood. And that is, even the Jews, if they wanted to survive that night, they had to get in a house. They had to paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. They had to consume a lamb. They had to eat a lamb. And if they couldn't eat the whole lamb because their family's too small, they invited another family in and they ate it, every part of it. Any part that they couldn't eat had to be burned. And you had to stay inside the house. And then the, the angel of death would pass over that house. That's where the word Passover came from. So God told the Jews, hey, you have to kill a perfect lamb. You have to put the blood over the doorpost house. You have to stay inside and you had to eat this cooked lamb. And it really, it's a, an amazing picture because it was a perfect lamb that had to be examined for three days before this happened. Not only was it a perfect lamb, it was a slain lamb. And then it was put inside them so it was a, a, a lamb that was ingested or brought in and it was shared with others. And that's what Jesus is. He is the perfect lamb. We have to ask him inside of us and we need to be sharing him with others. He is our Passover. And so 
Uh, the Jews obeyed God. They found a lamb without blemish. They killed the lamb. They ate the lamb. And when they left Egypt that night, the lamb was inside them. And when we leave slavery to the devil and to sin, we do so because the lamb of God is inside of us and he indwells us. Um, so the Jews were commanded to celebrate this every single year after that. Uh, and so that's why they, they raised Passover lambs so they could do that. Uh, to commemorate this time. And all of that was just a picture of Jesus Christ. No one could find fault in him. He was examined. Uh, in fact, he was examined over a period of three days. Uh, he died for us. His blood covers our sins. We receive him into ourselves, and we're supposed to share Christ with others. He is the Passover lamb. Now, let's go back to what happened. And I realize it's a little warm in here because the heat's on, and some of you are getting a little sleepy, and I apologize. I have to adjust the, it's one of those times of year you don't know whether to turn the heat on or the air conditioner or what does when. So just bear with me a few more minutes. Let's read what it says in Luke 2. It says, there were in the same country, now that's a key phrase, in the same country where Jesus was being born at Migdal Adar. In other words, in the surrounding countryside around Migdal Adar, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock, flock of what? Sacrificial lambs. Keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, what's their reaction? And this shall be a sign unto you. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, look at, look at what happens next. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known at us. And look what it says here. And they came with haste. Now, if, if it was just some random manger behind a barn inside the city, they would have had to go to the city and come from this end to this end to this end to this end, trying to figure out what it was. But the Bible says they came with haste. These shepherds knew exactly the one manger that stood out in their minds. It was their manger. It was the manger for Passover lambs. It was ceremonially clean and anything God did was going to be holy. They knew exactly where to go. They didn't hunt. They went straight to Migdal Adar and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And uh, so they're in the same country. They're the ones tending the Passover land and they came with haste. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, by the way, here's what the mangers look like. Uh, we, I think we probably somewhere, I don't know if it's up in the, it's probably up in the attic, but we have, like all churches do that have ever put on a Christmas play, a wooden manger. Problem was, is wood was not very plentiful in this part of the country, but rock was. And what they would do is they'd take some limestone rock and they would hew out a depression in it that they could lay this baby lamb in uh, and while it was in the swaddling clothes to protect it. That's what the manger was. And uh, so wood, by the way, you know, couldn't be cleansed easily, but rock can be washed easily if there's any, any blood left after the, the baby lamb is taken out. So Jesus is our rock our fortress, our high tower, and all, all of which are built from rock. So the bread of life is born in the house of, of bread of the Lord's fruitfulness. He's our Passover lamb. 
He's born in a manger dedicated to the Passover lambs kept ceremonially unclean. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths to keep him perfect. It is a place associated with death because Jesus was born to die. And the shepherds rushed directly to Migdal Adar. They didn't need a star to guide them, by the way. Sometimes you see manger scenes where there's a star over there and the shepherds. Now, the star was for later. Uh, the shepherds knew exactly where to go. They didn't need any guidance. Now, Isaiah 9, 6 says this, He shall be called Wonderful. One of the things about Christmas is if you really understand this story, you marvel at God's detail and precision. One of the things I marvel about when, when this story is there was a mathematician one time that went back and got population statistics and estimates the best we could. And he, just, he looked at just eight prophecies that could be fulfilled without supernatural intervention. Just, you know, if you took somebody born in Bethlehem, obviously people were born there. They took somebody entering Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, how many donkeys were there? How likely were people to ride it in? Uh, the fact he was crucified with thieves. What, how many people were crucified uh, in that area under Roman rule? And basically just eight prophecies out of 300. There's over 300 prophecies about the birth of Christ. But he, he looked just these eight prophecies and he said the odds were one in 100 decillion. Now, you can see the number of zeros there. That's a bigger number than, than my brain will process. But it's a wonder. The baby was born to die. He was born for you and me. He did it because he loved us and he wanted to deliver us from hell. And it is indeed an amazing grace. So what should we do? We need to give God the glory. He superintended every single detail. And he guided descendants of, of Daniel's Magi. We'll talk about that next time with a star that had a mind of its own. So, I'm going to wrap it up here and we'll get to the rest of the story next time. But you know, I, I don't know about you, I, I spent a little time yesterday thinking about Christmas gifts I needed to get. And of course, uh, as the family's gotten larger over the year, we, uh, we have a list and we have to uh, we draw names and each person buys one kind of big gift for uh, or at least a nominally large gift for somebody on that list. And I got my son-in-law's uh, name this year, and, and I tried to figure out what would he want. And he's a little bit of a geek like I am, and I thought, okay, I, I've got an idea. So I, I found something, I ordered it, got it on its way. But, you know, and then I started thinking about, oh, the grandkids. I tell you what, you need an extra job when you have 15 grandkids and one day it's going to be 60 or so, and I don't know. I've got to strike it rich soon if I'm going to keep that up. But you've got to, you know, you, what, do you, what do you get them? And what do you get the, you know, the babies? And what do, you, do you still give gifts to your kids when you're, when you're broke from buying gifts for the grandkids? You know, what do you do? And when does that cut off? A lot of decisions to be made. But, you know, a good question is, what do we give God this Christmas? And, uh, uh, by the way, I just want to tell you, Several of you have been extra generous in the last few weeks, and it has gotten us out of the, uh, the financial pits and greatly encouraged me, and I appreciate your generosity. Uh, and I think a lot of that's the result of prayers as well. But I think there's more we can give God than just money, and we need to give Him praise and glory. We need to give Him our time. We need to rededicate our families to Jesus Christ and uh, talking to them uh, about the Lord. We need to give to missions uh, to tell others about him. We need to keep giving to the church to equip the saints. But 
most of all, just to give them our time and our heart. Um, as Brother Stephen comes to lead us in a song, I just thought this would be a good song for us to sing, The Wonder of It All. Uh, there's a couple of different versions of this song. I grew up with uh, one. And if I could think of his name, I know my father-in-law would recognize it. What's that? Yeah, there's George Beverly Shea, but there was another one called The Wonder of It All Never Ceases to Amaze, How God Can Be Around Us in So Many Different Ways. I never question miracles, whether they be large or small. I just thank God for the wonder of it all. This is not that song, but it's a good song. And it's, this is a time of year to spend a little time being amazed at how detailed God was to have our Savior born in a place for Passover lambs where he would be our sacrifice. Main thing I want, if you don't remember anything else I've said, there's no way you can get to heaven without Jesus Christ in your heart. So ask him to be your Savior. Brother Stephen.